that you would renew a right spirit within us, that you would cleanse us. Lord, we, we want to be clean from sin, from all that is wrong. We confess what we have done wrong. We come to you needing your cleansing. Lord, we ask you to do your work in our lives today, and we ask you please to speak to us, to show us the way that you want us to live, to walk, to Help us to live each moment of each day in a way that pleases you. So now we ask you as we open your word that you would open your heart to us and that your spirit would make it alive to us in a special way. Amen. Amen. So I have promised you the most transformational series on Leviticus you've ever heard. And we're so far so good. Um, we started in Genesis, and that was good, and we're just fearlessly pressing on, and today we get to cleanness laws, all kinds of stuff about weird creatures we can and cannot eat, and uh, what to do when you're bleeding as a woman, and what you, you know, it's all kinds of great stuff. It, all those things you got to in your scripture reading and went, what in the world? Or maybe just say, let me read the headings. I don't, I don't even know what I'm, too much information. What, what is this about? Right? And uh, so, and in fact, these are the laws that people out there say, you believe in the Bible? Really? Do you ever wear poly cotton, mixed fibers? How about lobster? You eat lobster? And you say you believe in the Bible? You believe in those old laws? So this is the weird stuff that we get accused of, this ancient text that we believe in. What in the world are we doing with this stuff? And it even gets weirder because Jesus said we don't need to follow those laws. And Paul didn't really follow them. The Acts, they, they changed it. So, wait, God said we had to do this. And then later, well, not so much. What? So here we are. Fearlessly plowing into the places that you really don't want to read in Scripture. Um, you'll remember we had, uh, do you remember when we gave you this and we started talking about the law, learning to love Leviticus? Yep, here we are. We're learning to love Leviticus. So our theme for the year is living just and right, a, a year of living justice. We're trying to figure out how to live justice. And today we're talking about being holy and clean. So we're in Leviticus 11 to 16. It's also Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy is kind of the second law. It talks about this as well. Um, so what's the purpose of the cleanness laws? Now, as we read this uh, from Chris Wright, he told us, you know, we believe all Scripture is from God and is profitable for teaching us how to live just and right. And uh, so the question isn't which ones can we ignore. We have to figure out what they're all about. Um, <clears throat> and he, uh, he says, the question we should ask is, uh, the best way to derive principles from the Old Testament law is to ask questions. All laws in human societies are made for a purpose. Laws happen because people want to change society, achieve some social goal, foster a certain interest, or prevent some social evil. So when we look at particular law or group of biblical laws, we can ask, what could be the purpose of, uh, behind this law. To be more specific, what kind of situation was this law intended to promote or prevent? Um, what kind of situation made this law necessary? What values are given priority in this law? He has a number of things here. So whose needs and value rights are, upset, uh, are upheld? He says, now we won't always be able to answer these questions with much detail or insight. Some laws are just plain puzzling, but asking questions like these leads us to a much broader and deeper grasp of what Old Testament laws were all about, forming the kind of society God wanted to create. We've talked about that God wanted to make a new people, a different kind of society, which we've inherited. What kind of society should we be? So that was God's way for Moses' day. What's God's way for today, for us, for our community? And what can we learn from his way for them for our community now. And the truth is that there are, 
let me, since I'm reading this, let me go on. He says, you know, we say sometimes, why do we bother with those things? They're just Old Testament laws, just Old Testament. He says there are principled reasons why Christians not only need but also should not observe certain Old Testament laws simply as written. And regarding two kinds of law, the New Testament itself provides those reasons. The sacrificial laws we talked about, Jesus has replaced the sacrifice, all those sacrifices through his sacrifice. The food laws, the distinction between clean and unclean animals and foods was symbolic of the distinction between Israel and God's holy people and the Gentile nations. In the New Testament, that separation is abolished in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. Through the cross, God has made the two cultures one new humanity. And as Peter discovered through his vision in Acts 10, before going to the home of Gentile Cornelius, what God had called clean should no longer be called unclean. Today, some Messianic Jewish believers choose freely to observe the kashrut regulations, or eat kosher, as a mark of their Jewish community and cultural identity. But in their unity, believers are free from food laws. So that's where we're headed. But the real question I want us to ask is the question he suggests. What's the purpose of these cleanness laws? So to review, we're, we're trying to figure out a just culture. What would a just culture look like? And at Mount Sinai, we're at Mount Sinai, and God said he had chosen them to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they had to be, in order to be a kingdom of priests, they had to be separate from other ethnic groups. They had to be different somehow. And they had to be able to keep that distinction. They had to be a more just people, a more righteous people, and they had to keep that distinction from the unjust ways of the people around them. So we talked last time about how priests were the especially holy ones, set apart, and uh, like people going into a, um, a nuclear reactor, they had to have special things to keep from getting killed by the holiness of God. And they also had to stay away from uncleanness. This is an Ebola survivor. Um, they had to stay away from that so they could keep uncleanness as far away from them as, as possible. Um, so God, a return to God's purpose in creation. I'm reviewing some of the things we mentioned last time. Separating things into their proper place. Bringing the world into order. Dark and light, sea and land, the sky above, the, the water below. Calling to reflect God's image in the world and blessing on humanity. Fruitfulness, lush land, rest, walking together. All of those are part of what Leviticus is doing. It's giving order to the world and helping people to remember what the order is so that God can walk among them again. This holy God could be among this people who were impure. How could that happen? Part of it is them being holy like God is. Leviticus 10 says, You must distinguish what's sacred from what's common, what's unclean from what's clean. You must teach the Israelites all these decrees. So it's separate for God and separate from what's unclean. So they had to be separated from what was unclean and separated for God. So this is the vision, this is the worldview underneath of what all of these laws are about. There is a holy God holy, separate, totally different. And he wants to move into the neighborhood with the holy people in this tabernacle, in the holy of holies. And in order for him to be there, everything around there must be holy. And that holiness could kill anything else if it's not. So we need to keep things that are clean around. So the Israelites, the holy nation, they need to keep things that are clean. And anything that's unclean needs to be outside the camp. So if you get a skin disease that makes you unclean, you have to get out of town. You have to be on the outside of the camp so that you don't corrupt and pollute the clean and holy place and so that God doesn't destroy by mixing holiness and uncleanness. There, there isn't a... Um, so this is the worldview behind it. Now, out of this worldview, a lot of things have come. So the priests... When somebody was unclean and they went outside and they, were, they had this skin disease, the priest examined them like a public health officer and said, yep, that, that's, that could be. Go home for seven days, come back. Yep, definitely, you have to leave. More important that they leave for the sake of the community. Obviously, that was a disaster for them. But to keep the community clean. If there was mold on uh, garments or in the house or the tent, they had to get rid of that, keep that cleanness. 
So we've adopted some of those laws. We've learned some things from that, and we have public health officers who fortunately try to teach people about how Ebola works and not maybe some other worldview of what's happening um, so that people can keep clean from Ebola. They can keep clean from AIDS. They can keep clean from other germs. So we developed a germ theory, part of out of that understanding. But now we take our theory and we try to put it back into Scripture. So what germs are they talking about? Well, they weren't talking about germs. They were talking about holiness, cleanness, and uncleanness. And so we try to put back in our worldview into 3,500 years ago and say, well, this must be what they meant. God must have had this in mind. Maybe. Maybe that was some of the side effect, or maybe not. So the world was separated into these three parts. Everything for the Israelites was separated, and daily this was reinforced. There are holy things. There are clean things. There are unclean things. There are animals that you can eat. There are animals that you can't eat. There are insects you can't eat. There are insects you can't eat. There are some animals that you can eat that are perfect, unblemished, and could be used as a sacrifice and be holy. So some of those clean things could be made holy. Only the perfect, unblemished, you know, not every Israelite can be a priest. Not every person born in that, he has to not have any deforma deformation. Not every, he has to be perfect physically in every other way so that he could be holy and enter into God's presence, so that a sacrifice could be made. You see the three categories for their life? And everything they did, these laws were all about keeping those categories in mind. So how do we get, if you're unclean, how do you get back to the camp? You can be cleansed through a process, through the priest approving that, through a, a, a sacrifice, etc. You could, a clean thing could be sanctified and made holy, like the priest was last time we talked about the ordination. But also things that were holy could be profaned, and clean things could be polluted. They could get a skin disease, or they could have a discharge, or something could happen that would make them unclean. How did that happen? Well, sin and infirmity moved people or things toward the direction from holy to clean to unclean. Okay, so if you got sick, if you start bleeding, if you have some kind of other, other discharge, you become unclean. So some of the logic behind this is that um, God is life absolute life. And those things that are absolute life are there. If there is something that reminds you of death, it's moving toward uncleanness. Now, bodies that are discharging things are seen as losing life, as, as what a dead body does. And they are becoming unclean. So they're put in unclean. A dead body, a carcass of anything, a dead body of a person is unclean. And you become unclean by touching it. So those things are polluted through infirmity or through sin. Well, how, once you're over there, do you get back? That's through sacrifice. So when you come and you say, hey, look, I, I'm not, my skin disease is gone. The priest says, okay, he proves that. And then he says, here's the sacrifices you have to offer in order to be welcomed back into the community of the clean, into the camp, into the holy people of Israel. Are you getting the logic? We have to understand their worldview, and each of these specific laws were reinforcing this daily in their worldview. Okay? I hope you're following me. Um, so, this is part of some of the ways to maintain holiness. When they moved in with the Israelites and the other nations around them, much more powerful nations, they had to be able to maintain their understanding of the world. So some ways that God put in the law was teaching children. Remember he talks about in Deuteronomy 6, talk about it when you're on the way. When you go down, you lie up. We put it on your door, door post. We tell your kids in the normal way of things as you're driving the car. Talk about what God's instructions are. He also said, marry a follower of Yahweh. No marrying, don't marry the Canaanites. You'll end up just becoming Canaanites. Another one was harem. When they went into the land, they were supposed to destroy everything that was Canaanite. Destroy the cities, destroy the people, destroy the artwork, destroy everything because 
they, it would hook them in following Canaanite religion. That's a hard one for us. We're not going to talk about that one. And then cleanness laws. All these laws that talked about which things were clean, which things were unclean, and how to maintain this clean and holy life. Um, so, so uh, So this is about being part of the in-group. And these were boundary lines that helped them to maintain who was in and who was out of the, uh, of the group. Who was part of Israel, part of the holy people, and who was out of the holy people. Um, now I want to ask you something. Have you ever had food, so now food, we're talking about the dietary laws a little bit, food is actually a pretty powerful thing. Well, I would, you know, train our, in, in uh, Nairobi when I was training missionaries, we'd, we'd train them, we'd teach them about worldview and all these kinds of things about mission practice, whatever, and then we'd send them out on practicum and then come back and then debrief and say, so you, they spent some weeks um, for the summer out someplace, we'd come back and then we'd debrief, so how was it, you know, what he, oh man, the food. It was always about the food. And, and some of you here think that, well, they're Africans. They must have just thought, well, it's African food. No, 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 no. The people from Kenya go to Tanzania. They're like, oh, the food. You know, the food in Tanzania is just terrible. I remember somebody from, from Ethiopia talking. No, he was Kenyan, talking to a Sierra Leonean woman and saying, so you've been in Kenya a long time. You must, you must uh, eat, you know, cook Kenyan now, right? She's like, no, we cook Sierra Leone. We like spice. We like... And, and he was like, well, but you've been in Kenya a while. And, and then I, he talked about, oh, I was in Ethiopia. Man, the food is terrible up there. Oh, yeah. But he, so he, obviously my mom's cooking is the best, wherever, wherever that is, right? So I want you to think about a time when eating food made you feel in, at home, part of things. And then think of a time when it made you feel out. And not part of things, okay? Turn to your neighbor and, and tell them one of those stories quickly. Take a whiff. I, I already smelled it before you moved. <laughs> when we were in Peru, I'm going to just walk around here with this. Excuse me. So there we go. Just want you to get a smell of that while you're talking. Once you get a smell of that while you're talking, is that good stuff? Okay. Okay, so food makes you feel in sometimes. Makes you feel does somebody have a, a quick mention of something? I I'm sorry you can't all smell this, but uh maybe if I leave it out here you will all be able to smell it by the end. Um bit of a familiar smell to some of you, I think. Maybe not to others of you. Um so Dried fish. Um, how many of you like dried fish? Okay. So what kind of dried fish do you like? What do you call it? Mukeke. Okay. I see some smiles back there. Big fish, small fish? Medium fish. Okay. Half, half a tilapia. Okay. Dried, yeah. I have to admit, for myself, one of my least favorite foods in Tanzania and Kenya was daga. Daga is uh, tiny minnows that have been dried. And um, 
Yeah, I know he's, so yeah, he's wishing I had some, right. Uh, so my Tanzanian friends, when they had people bringing Dagah back to Boston because they missed it, I was like, really? Bringing Dagah back to Boston. Wow. Um, so the, uh, I can explain more about that in a little bit, though. Um, one minute. Okay, tell me. <laughs> okay. So we're going to talk a little bit more about about this, but um, so. Paul Hebert, who was my teacher, talked about how we, we, often make lo we often make bounded groups. And food can be one of the ways that we draw a line between us and, and them. And um, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but uh, I'm just going to tell you about this, this, this fish. This is, um, I've never seen this kind of fish before, but I've eaten it before. Um, that's kind of hard to understand, right? But um, this is cod, caught in Norway, Norwegian stockfish. So they figured out back in, it was first written about in 1555 about how they could split this, hang it on birch poles and let the north wind blow and dry it. And then you could take it to the inner valleys of Norway and you could, uh, and, and you could keep it for years, dried. And then Norwegians discovered something really important. The easy way to reconstitute it to good fish is to soak it in lye. Put some water and some ashes on it, and it comes back. It's actually more nutritious because it's kind of pre-digested. Um, it actually is more nutritious. Um, now, it, it's called lutefisk. Um, so I ate lutefisk once a year every Christmas Eve, um, except when I was in Africa because I couldn't get lutefisk. I had to eat fresh fish. So, you know, um, but, and it tastes like Christmas to me. Um, you put all that melted butter on it, and it tastes just like melted butter. It has that special kind of translucent fish jello look to it and this special smell. Um, so, yeah, that was an insider thing for me. Now, as far as I knew, the reason to eat lutefisk was because I was Norwegian. Uh, my parents were Norwegian. And um, how did I know I was Norwegian? Because I ate lutefisk. Um, that was pretty much the whole purpose of lutefisk was as a badge that I am Norwegian. Um, and I'm a real Norwegian. Um, people in Norway, they got refrigerators and freezers and they quit. So 30 to 40% of Norwegian Americans eat lutefisk at least once a year. Um, but 2 or 3% of Norwegians do because they kind of like frozen fish. Um, whatever, each to their own, right? Um, but you see, when you become an immigrant in another culture, sometimes you hang on to those things that make you special, different, distinct. Even other people who don't need to keep it. So I was, I was traveling with with, uh, I, I was in Israel for, in Jerusalem for a semester, and I traveled for eight days down into Egypt, and along the way I was with a, an American Jew, and he said he eats kosher in America. But when he's in Israel, he doesn't eat kosher. I was like, well, why? He said, well, in America I have to be Jewish. Here, I am Jewish. I don't have to prove I'm Jewish. So for him, eating kosher was just about being Jewish. Now, he didn't necessarily believe in God or anything else, but he was Jewish. Um, and eating kosher made sure that he was Jewish. Just like eating this uh, makes sure that you're Jewish. I'm well, not Jewish, actually. Norwegian. I thought it was about Norwegian. So here's the thing. The meaning of something, it can have a purpose and a meaning, and then it can change 
and we can not know what the original purpose was. Until this week, I had no idea why Ludafisk existed, other than to prove that I was Norwegian. Um, but actually, it's a wonderful way to store something. Easily, tra- It's very light once it's dried. You can transport it, and you can have good protein. And then people came from those inner valleys where they didn't have fresh fish over to Minnesota, and they hung on to their lutefisk because they wanted to prove that they were Norwegian. Now, here's the problem. Some people are eating less lutefisk. So even my kids, I think they're real Norwegians. Um, they do like African food, though. They're, I think they're real Africans. Anyway, um, so the, the Olson's Fish Company over here that does herring and lutefisk and other things, their sales are declining every year um, in selling lutefisk. Yeah, I, they could go out of business, except they have a new market, which I just discovered this year. And I... So who do you think gave me this wonderful stockfish? Ikena gave it to me, who is Igbo from eastern Nigeria. He brought it from Nigeria, and he's been saving it, rationing it for two years to make those special soups they make in eastern Igbo. Now, I was like, what? But it turns out when the Biafra War, the Civil War was going on, the Norwegians helped them out by giving them dried fish, like of course they would. And uh, they found out it had a great flavor, a lot like some things they had, and so they fell in love with stockfish. They they haven't discovered how great it is in in lye, you know, but making lutefisk. But but in other good soups and stuff, which I have yet to taste, he kind of is going to show me sometime. Um, So I sent him this article and he said, what? I can get this right here instead of getting it from Nigeria? Right here in Minneapolis, they, make, they can sell me stockfish? So it turns out that stockfish is also a, a boundary marker to being really evil, Nigerian, having good stuff. So that was amazing. I mean, this is like, kind of like our congregation, right? Really uh, interesting interplay of things. So he and I are our mates now, because we eat the same fish. And ugali, I eat ugali with you, so I'm, we're, we're good. Um, so, the, so these are boundary markers that keep us in and out. That's what Ludafisk was all about, was just proving you're, you were a Norwegian. Um, so what principle divided the in and the out things. Um, people have had different opinions because I said so. God just picked a random thing and said, eat this and don't eat that because I said so. Um, basically, the, the problem is we have forgotten. Just like I forgot why in the world we eat lutefisk or what stockfish is for. Uh, I ate it because I was Norwegian, but I had no idea why. So we really don't know why God said these. So some people say, well, he just said so. Maybe it's health. Um, so if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you'd say, well, God really wants us to eat these things. And he really wants us to, my Seventh-day Adventist friend was, was very into, uh, this is God's health rules. Um, the problem is, then why did Jesus say not to worry about it anymore? So that, that gets a little confusing. And some of these are health rules, and they're very helpful things. They have good side effects. Like, like for example, the weird thing about, so when a woman has a baby, then she, she's unclean for 40 days, and if it's a, if it's a boy, or if that's for a boy, and 80 days for a girl. Well, one of the nice side effects of that is she doesn't have to get bothered by people so much for 40 days or 80 days. She can just bond with the baby, and, you know, her husband's kind of got to stay away a little bit. And, and uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, got some positive things. And also, if you're a young teenage guy, because, you know, in Israel, a lot of the women would have been, um, either pregnant or breastfeeding a lot of time. They're having kids, so they wouldn't be menstruating. But, you know, those teenage girls, they, if you're a guy, you've got to watch out. You could be unclean if you don't stay pretty careful about how you hang out with those girls. So, that, you know, some nice side effects. But that wasn't necessarily the purpose. The purpose was this other vision of holiness, cleanness, and uncleanness. Um, association with pagan symbols, you know, maybe they sacrificed pigs, and, that, and so we shouldn't sacrifice pigs. Yeah, but they also sacrificed a lot of cows and goats and the same stuff. So it doesn't quite work either. Um, probably the best theory 
um, our best guess, maybe we'll say, is that the holy things were life itself. The holy, the perfect thing could be sacrificed. An unblemished bull could be sacrificed. And then the clean things were normal, healthy things. Things that fit the category they were in. So if you're a fish with scales and fins, I can eat you. That's a normal fish. If you crawl in the right, you know, like a lobster thing, that's not a real fish, is it? I shouldn't eat that. If, you're, if you fly, but you're a mammal, like a bat, I shouldn't eat that. If you fly, but you eat blood, like a vulture, shouldn't eat that. Um, so, because the abnormal things had to do with death. If, you're, uh, if the, this body is giving off blood or other things, that's, that reminds us of death. So we're going to keep that far away outside the camp. The normal, clean, good things we're going to keep in the camp. And then the, uh, the holy things could actually be in the sanctuary. You following me? Yes. Kind of some principle of, of normal. And that the whole thing about not mixing crops, not mixing fabrics, not mixing, that's all about keeping lines between things so we don't, we keep the world in organized. Um, so <laughs> what's the purpose of the cleanness laws? We're back to this. What, let's look at what the scripture itself says in the midst of all these rules. What are some of the scripture itself says about it? So this is from Leviticus 11, 44. I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourself unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. He's just talked about those creatures. I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that you may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. So the point of all these laws is for the Israelites to continue to be holy, to be that holy community. That is the point. And it's not just, a, and so think about it, as powerful as food is, that every time you ate, you remembered, I'm holy. I'm an Israelite. God is holy. I have to be like God. Every time you, uh, you had a lot of other things that had to do with holiness and unholiness, you reminded that there is cleanness and uncleanness. So on several times on a daily basis, kind of like when we pray before a meal, we're reminding ourselves, this came from God. We want to, and <laughs> my nieces were always like, Grandpa, sanctify the food now. You know, because he was like to pray that it would be sanctified. And they're like, whatever that is. With, uh, making it holy. What does that mean? Um, so therefore be holy because I am holy. Deuteronomy 14 also talks about these food laws. At the beginning, Verse 1, it says, You're the children of Yahweh your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, like other people did, Canaanites, for you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, Yahweh has chosen you to be his treasured possession. So do not eat any detestable thing. And then it goes on and talks about which things are detestable. After that whole list and explanation, it ends with this. All flying insects are unclean to you. Do not eat them. Grasshoppers and locusts were good, right? You guys good with grasshoppers and locusts? You know, not so much. Um, anyway, if you're Jewish, you can eat grasshoppers and locusts. But any winged creature that is clean, you may eat. Do not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to any other foreigner, but you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So you see... If, you're, if you come out and your cow is dead, you can't have it. But you can sell it uh, or give it away. Yep. You see, the distinction is being made between us and them. We eat this kind of food. Other people eat other kinds of food. Other people, foreigners are outside of Israel. Foreigners are part of the unclean. You could become an Israelite through circumcision, following the law, eating the right things. You could become an Israelite. That boundary was crossable. 
but there was definitely a, a boundary between the holy people that God had chosen as his treasured possession to be like him and be holy and others. Now this, if you think about this principle, it has positive and negative ways that it could, it could be uh, uh, ramifications of it. So let's talk about some of the dangers. The dangers are instead of enjoying and radiating God's grace, life, and joy, which they were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, radiating God's joy and justice and holiness to the whole world, right? I am going to bless you and through you all nations on earth are going to be blessed. And we as a, as a congregation say we're called to radiate life and joy, right? But instead of that, you could move into legalism which says, I become holy by following the rules. If I, if I eat the right things, then I'll be holy. Okay, I grew up in a holiness tradition, Pentecostal holiness. So Pentecostal usually comes out of holiness. We were, we were trying to be holy. And sometimes we got into this legalism where we become holy by following the rules. So you don't drink smoke, chew, or go with girls that do, you're holy. By doing the right things, and of course you had to, especially women, had a whole bunch of things they could wear or not wear. Pretty much skirts, long hair, no makeup, no jewelry, and my mom still wears that. She's gotten much more into grace as far as everybody else. But uh, that's pretty much Pentecostal bun lady, as my my wife uh, said to herself when she first saw her, I don't know if I can handle this. Can I be in this family? Um, so becoming holy by following the rules. But, but that's not how, notice, I want you to back up here. Israel didn't become holy by following the rules. Can we back up to that? Remember? I am the Lord you God who brought you out of Egypt, who welcomed you to be my people, who said you could be my treasured possessions, and we, you agreed, and I agreed to be your God. And now that we're married, here's some ways we're going to get along. There's some ways that I can live with you if we do these things. Because I want you to be holy like I'm holy. So the rules came out of a gracious welcome. I want you to think about this. This happened. So, so they, they were slaves in Egypt. They came out, and God said, you're going to keep the Sabbath. Every seven days, you're going to be able to rest. For 400 years, you never got a rest. Even a day in Egypt, you were a slave. But now you get a Sabbath. And you know what happens? The kids and the grandkids go, man, my dad won't let us do anything on Sunday. Man, he's doing all these rules and this. Same thing happens, right? You know, I am free from alcohol. God delivered me from alcohol. Hallelujah. And, there's, and my kids, I'm not going to let them get cut in alcohol and have a drop of alcohol. And the kids grow up and go, man, my dad, he was like, we couldn't have any alcohol. He's like, you're not a Christian if you, don't, if you drink any alcohol. You get how it switched from grace and freedom and deliverance to rules and being about the rules. You get that switch? And how, and then it becomes, I'm a Christian because of the rules. Garrison Keillor grew up in a pretty strict denomination. In one of his footnotes, he's, you know, not really supposedly about him, but he says, my parents said north was east, so I went west. They said, I go to hell if I smoked a cigarette, so I became a chain smoker. So some of us, the pendulum swings over here, so we swing it over there, and we forget that it's about grace. And because I'm in grace, I can be in relationship. And how could I be in relationship with a holy God? So legalism is when it becomes about the rules. And then in that becomes pride in our holiness versus them, the unholy. So we Pentecostals, you know, we were more Christian than the other people in town. You know, Lutherans and Catholics, they said they were Christian, but they weren't as Christian as we were because we kept all those rules. You could tell that we didn't drink any alcohol. We didn't, you know, all those things. And so I got to demonstrate my holiness by taking a note to class when we were dancing and saying, I, I, you know, it's against my religion to participate in square dance in gym class. 
because I'm Pentecostal. That's how holy I am. I didn't feel so proud or holy at the time, but, you know, it was kind of, and I didn't go to those dances, and I didn't go to, you know, I didn't go to parties, and I, you know, kept separate because I was, you know, we didn't go to movies, and uh, we didn't, we didn't, you know, got a TV when I was nine, so, it was, you know, it was, the world was coming in, but, and it, um, actually, I don't mind that I missed those movies, and the TV would have been just as well outside, <laughs> but um, the fact is that we were kind of proud of how we were better. And the Israelites, the original purpose was lost. And it became a, not about reaching the Gentiles and radiating life and joy. It became about, we're Israelites. And the more they became an oppressed minority, the more it became, we are holy, we are better than these Gentiles, even if they're in charge. Um, so, pride in our holiness. And it can separate us from them. So, I wasn't a great evangelist in high school because I didn't hang out that much. Because after all, I had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and there was Monday night, um, youth, and there was Friday night youth things. And you know, we did, when would I hang out with people? Um, even going to games and playing in the pep band, I didn't do that a lot because I always, you know, I had youth activities off. So some of that separation can keep us from radiating life and joy, keep us from enjoying God's grace and life and joy is the first thing, right? If you're not enjoying God's grace and life and joy and the fact that you're saved, forget radiating it, right? If you're like, oh, i got to follow the rules because I'm a Christian, I guess. My parents, you know. That's not, you got to know that you're called, you're treasured, you're chosen. And then, how could I be in a good relationship with God? So, that's some of the dangers. Um, so I already talked about this. I got ahead of myself. Sorry. So why do we eat lutefisk? Well, not the same reason why Ikenna and Ebo, but uh, they all go to Olson's Fish Factory. It all comes from the same place. Um, all comes from Norway, where all good things come from, right? Oh, Sweden. Sorry, sorry. Um, actually, this had an interesting effect in Africa in missions as well, because people came over, and, and when the Swedish said, you know, well, this is how we do things, and this is what a Christian wedding looks like, white and a cake and a whatever. And this is, well, you wouldn't want to do that. Pretty soon, you know, people in the mission field got the idea, anything we used to do in our, where we came from is pagan and wrong, and everything European or American is Christian. So this is a Christian wedding. There is no weddings with brides in white and cake and whatever in the Bible. Instead of sanctifying what was already there, we adopted some other thing. We had no idea what the purpose of it was. And Mzungu brought it, and he was a Christian. He said it was Christian, so, and he didn't like the stuff we did. He didn't like our food, so he said it's not Christian. Right? I hope you're following me. Because God has a, a way that he want. He had God's way for Norway, God's way for Moses' day, and he has God's way for DRC, and he has God's way for St. Paul, and he has God's way for us. And I don't know exactly what food we're going to agree on. We might want to just enjoy each other's food. I have you over for lutefisk sometime. But uh, after I have some stockfish soup. But um, anyway, so what about food laws for the church? Jesus followed the food laws and the sacrifice. He was an Israelite. Jesus was never in church. He wasn't really a Christian. He was part of Israel. Followed the food laws, did the sacrifices, and, um, but then he said something, he said, but he kind of broke some of them in strategic places. He didn't wash his hands. Does that mean we shouldn't wash our hands before we eat? No, he was making a point about the ritual that they were doing. And, and he said, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of him. Anger and malice and other things are what make people unclean. And then Matthew says, and by that, he showed that all foods are clean. This was really important in the church because here's what happened. You know, they had this thing all set up and then God really does a number on Peter. First of all, they go to the Samaritans. That was pretty bad. But then this Cornelius, this colonial officer, God sends this sheet down with all these unclean animals just when Peter is really hungry and says, eat, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way, I am a holy person. I am an Israelite. I've never eaten that stuff. 
And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Peter's confused. But, but, but I thought you called it unclean. Now you're calling it clean? Um, and he had to repeat the vision three times. And then give him explicit instructions. Somebody's going to come knock on your door and say, come with Cornelius. You must go with them. He goes with to Cornelius' house. And then he's preaching. And then the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles. And he realizes the Holy God has come to these Gentiles. That's not in my paradigm. He says, God has shown me that he has no favoritism. And you know what? When he went back to his folks, you know what they said? You ate at their house? You slept in their beds? What are you thinking, Peter? And he's like, well, the Holy Spirit showed up and just kind of blew my mind. And the Holy Spirit likes to do that. He kind of blew open the doors that had kept them separate in that pride about we are the really Christians, the real holy ones. And he blew it open and said, no, everybody is welcome. Um, and Paul, Paul also doing away with sacrifice. He talks about he even goes places and he sits down to eat. And if they, he just eats what they give him. And he doesn't say, now, was this food sacrificed to idols? If they put it in front of his plate, he eats it. If they said, well, this food was sacrificed to idols, he's got, well, yeah, you'll see you have an issue with this, so I won't eat it. But otherwise, God made it, I eat it. That was his rule. Um, now, that's actually come back in with some of the spiritual warfare stuff. Like, food can be infected, objects can be infected, and it actually destroys mission. So, People in Tanzania used to have a great relationship between Muslims and, and Christians, and then, but the Muslims did all the slaughtering of animals because they had a particular way they wanted it slaughtered, and the Christians didn't care. But then some Christians started saying, but maybe it's infected by demons if the Muslims slaughter it. So then it got to be this huge deal, and nobody could, and then, and then people are like, well, you know, my, my dad is a Muslim. He gave me a cell phone, but it might be infected by demons. So I, I crushed it. So you don't get what I'm saying? The spiritual warfare thing can get us into some weird reinstating of what God has blessed. Um, so we need to keep the doors open because um, Paul and Jesus did and the Holy Spirit did. So we had this bounded group and there is the in-group. Paul Hebert says, but say somebody in an Indian village hears about Jesus once and he says, I want to follow Jesus. And he starts following Jesus, but the evangelist moves on. And he doesn't know about the Trinity, and he doesn't know that he's not supposed to drink, smoke, chew, or just go with girls that do, and he doesn't know um, the Apostles' Creed, and he doesn't know anything. Is he going to be in heaven? That's Paul Hebert's question. And he, he puts it this way. He says, we can think of the group in another way, not as a bounded group, but as a centered group. If you're heading toward Jesus, if you are following Jesus, if you're wanting to get there, then you are in. If you are taking his sacrifices, cleansing your sins, you may not have gotten all the details right. You may not be cleaned up right. You may not have get, got your whole life straightened out. But you're heading toward Jesus. You're in. But you know there are other people inside the church, inside of even good Pentecostal holiness churches, who aren't heading toward the cross. They, they aren't after more and more of Jesus. In fact, some of them are like, I am so good, I am so holy, I do all the rules, I follow everything, I teach Sunday school. I, it's not about Jesus at all. It's legalism, it's about their being good enough, doing the rules well enough. They're trusting their own works for salvation instead of Jesus' work on the cross. So they actually can look like they're in close, but they're heading the other direction. So it's more like when you take a magnet and pass it through sand and iron filings. And the iron filings come out. Now you couldn't see them in the box, which was which. But when you put that magnet of Jesus through there, and see that, then, you know, I found out 
there were a whole bunch of Lutherans and Catholics and other people who were really good Christians. Really, people who taught me a lot. I had, I mean, this Catholic priest I did spiritual direction with and praying with him, and he's, he's got his hands laid on me, and he's praying in tongues, and I'm going, this is not what I grew up with. But he really followed Jesus, and a lot of other people too. And people who, when you watch their way of doing things, when you go to another culture and see the way they do things, you may not think that's Christian because it doesn't fit the Christian you grew up with. And if you come to this church and you see some other people and you say, how come they don't, we don't do that. Pastor Andrew's bringing Ash Wednesday in. From That's what those Lutherans do or those Catholics or something. But Ash Wednesday? We're Pentecostals. We don't do Ash Wednesday. Or the opposite, right? We have our way that we did Christianity, and we've got a lot to learn from a lot of other people's way of doing Christianity. A lot of the denominations and cultures and history and so much. God's way in Norway is not necessarily God's way today in this congregation. So, are you counting in because you do the rules or because you're following Jesus? If you're following Jesus, you're going to want to do whatever he wants you to do. So, um, let's show this video here. Let me, let me see if I can... Not that video. They're working on it. Um, so I'll give you a little... Um, you know, I showed these a couple times, but so many people said they liked it, I decided to show you one more. So... He's sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. 
And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. That's right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development. This time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but... Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity and bringing everything back to life. We believe the Bible is one complete... So you can look up more at Bible Project. Um, do you get that reversal? That is amazing so that we can talk about radiating life and joy. We can talk about the gates of hell cannot stand against us as we blow through them. Um, we can't stand against the church. So let's look at 1 Peter 1. I want you to see that this isn't just Old Testament done away with. Um, and I, I'd encourage you to read 1 Peter 1. Um, when you get back, but says this, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. See, because this pendulum swung from, you know, we don't have to do all those rules. Now we don't really know, is there any difference between Christians and non-Christians? Could anybody tell that you're a Christian? So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come into the world when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways or living to, of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do. What you eat, every piece, everything you do must be holy, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say in Leviticus 11. You must be holy because I am holy. So even Leviticus 11 is good, according to Peter. And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. doesn't show favoritism. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. 
So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. So we're living as foreigners in this land, and we're going to be different from other people, but we live in reverent fear of this holy God that we are representing. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, has made us who were unclean, not only to be clean, but to be holy. And he wants us to be holy, like he's holy, through his power. So here's a few things as takeaways. You can, I know I threw a lot of stuff out here to, to think about, but a um, few takeaways. Accept Jesus' sacrifice to cleanse you. You're not going to be holy any other way. I don't care how many laws you follow, how, what you wear, what you eat, what you, you're not going to be holy anyway except Jesus' sacrifice for you. Then by his Spirit's power, live a more clean, pure, holy life for God and from corrupt ways that everybody does. We don't want to be like everybody. We want to be more holy, more pure, more clean, more life-giving, grace-giving, joy-filled. Be one with all followers of Jesus. That means people who eat different than you, dress different than you, might have some different beliefs than you. Those distinctions are done away with now. And we get to eat together at the same table with all followers. And don't separate from the world in the sense of people. Okay? The world is used two different ways in the New Testament. You want to separate from worldly things, worldly values, but don't separate from the people in the world. That's not possible. In fact, Paul at one point says, I didn't mean that you shouldn't associate with people who are worldly, but I do want you to not associate with people who say they're Christians, but in that case, sleep with their mother. Because that's prohibited in Leviticus. And you guys are so proud that you're accepting. No, no, don't be accepting of that. Put them out of the camp. Put them out of the church. There's actually excommunication in the New Testament as well when people refuse to live the holy life that God has called us to. So don't separate yourself from people, but radiate Jesus' life, joy, grace, holiness to those who are yet to receive his sacrifice for them. We are called to an amazing, holy calling. To be an amazing people. Not because we're amazing, but because he's amazing. Because we have that power of the Son, that holiness, that wants to enter into us, purify us, and radiate out of us. And if we let him, he'll do that. Not just as individuals, but as a community in the way we relate to each other. He'll make us that just, holy, great kingdom that he wanted to bless all the nations. Let's pray together. And with the worship leaders come. Lord, this is incredible that you have chosen us, called us to be a holy people, a nation after you, a holy priesthood, and you have made us your own through your sacrifice. We do not deserve that. It's not because of anything we've done, and we can't earn it by anything we do. But we accept it. And we want to live a life that reflects it, your holiness, your grace, your love, your joy. We can't do it, but you can. Make us people of love and grace who receive your love, your grace, your forgiveness, and give your love, your grace, your forgiveness, your joy. As we go out on to this week, we pray for your work in our lives and through us. Purify us and make us a blessing. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give a benediction, give the priest benediction, and then... Uh, 
you get a good song you can stay for, you can go get your kids and you can uh, go as well. So here's the benediction. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Say, you might be here. Dave was just reminding me of this. You might be here and, and you're singing this and you're going, I don't know if I have a clean heart. I don't know if I'm in or out. I, don't, I, I feel torn about this. <clears throat> I want you to remember that you can enter in. The curtain is divided because the cross is there. So please, move toward the cross. Enter in. Receive his purification for you. Be part of us. And uh, be assured of that. And if you want to talk more about it, you can come up here, talk to me or others who will be up here praying. Gene and others, would you come up and be ready to pray with people? Let's continue.